Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai in Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the living world. Join me and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might envision and create a more flourishing future for all in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. If you'd like the opportunity to meet me in person and explore these themes in greater depth, I'd love to invite you to the Flourishing Futures Salon. This is an exciting series of intimate, curated gastronomical gatherings that combine locally sourced food and elegant wines with meaningful, thought-provoking conversation. These are enchanting, poignant and memorable evenings designed to bring together diverse perspectives with the aim of cultivating community and vibrant new partnerships. If you'd like to attend the next gathering in London, please sign up at ffsalons.com to register your interest. When we have the next date scheduled, you'll receive a private invitation and a special listener's discount. I'm excited to meet you if you choose to come. And in the meantime, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I speak with Darcia Narvaez, award-winning author and professor of psychology emerita at the University of Notre Dame. Darcia is the founder of the public and professional educational outreach project, the Evolved Nest Initiative, whose non-profit mission is to share her science research into developing appropriate baselines for lifelong human wellness by meeting the biological needs of infants. This well-being baseline is imperative at this time as the United States ranks 41st out of 41 developed countries in public policies that support families. The former executive editor of the Journal of Moral Education, Darcia was listed among the top 2% of scientists worldwide in 2020, and she currently serves as the president of the award-winning venerable nonprofit Kindred World, who has been serving the regeneration since 1996. A board of directors member of Attachment Parenting International, Darcia is also an advisory board member of the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. Her pioneering book, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture and Wisdom, won the 2017 Expanded Reason Award and received the William James Award from the American Psychological Association in 2015. In 2022, Darcia was elected a fellow to the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the largest international body of professional scientists in the world, and publisher of the prestigious journal Science, where she was honoured for her distinguished contributions, illuminating typical and atypical development in terms of well-being, morality and sustainable wisdom. Having held interdisciplinary conferences at the University of Notre Dame regarding early experience and human development, Darcia organised a conference on sustainable wisdom, integrating indigenous know-how for global flourishing, which touched upon some of the themes she explores in her recent book, Restoring the Kinship Worldview, Indigenous Voices Introduce 28 Precepts for Rebalancing Life on Planet Earth, which she co-authored with Wahing Pitopa. Darcia, thank you so much for joining me in conversation. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And where are you Where are you right now in the world? I live in South Bend, Indiana, which is in mm -hmm. the upper Midwest of the United States, near Chicago, 90 minutes away ah, from Chicago, yeah. driving. Yeah. Very nice. I visited Chicago. Very beautiful place. Lots yeah. of water, which uh, I didn't realize until I got there. Anyway, um, I'd love to start our conversation by opening with a question that I always like to offer in the first instance. And that's what do you sense or imagine is going on in the global human psyche right now, if we can use that frame? Well, I, uh, some people are very optimistic that we're moving towards a higher consciousness of some sort. And I still struggle with that idea because we've undermined our human nature from the way we treat children, which we'll talk about. And so you end up with people who are kind of half half human. <laughs> when they're adults, they're kind of stuck. Their brain isn't fully developed. Their self-regulation systems of various kinds, stress response, are not functioning optimally. And so they get easily uh, off kilter and easily um, pushed into self kind of protectionist, aggressive orientations. And 
um, especially affects boys. So males need, boys need a lot more nurturing uh, than girls because they have less built-in resilience and, and mature more slowly. But in patriarchal societies, they tend to get less nurturing. And so you end up with a dangerous person, uh, either well, they, or, or withdrawn and kind of uh, not there, but they're going to be dangerous because they're going to want to find some way to feel safe because they didn't feel safe for so long and so neglected. And then they get mad at women because mothers didn't take care of them the way that we're built to do that uh, in our species. And so you end up with people who are so upset and they're triggered easily. And then we have social media that triggers everybody. And then they just, you know, guns are everywhere in the States. And so you can go find a gun when you're mad. You can uh, you know, use it, and then because you lose your head, you lose your heart, you lose your your uh, sense of connection, mm. right? And mm. so you do all this damage. So, for me, uh, we have to get back to our normal way of raising, our species normal way that promotes wellness and well being and flourishing in people, uh, and in the bio community, the natural world, the rest of our relations. We have to get back to that if we're going to, you know, even have any future. So that's where I conflict with those that say, oh, yeah, this is all fine and we're good and we'll be fine and AI will save us and all this. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm saying we got to get back to what our ancestors knew. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, and I wonder if this will weave in later. Um, we have so much other territory to kind of explore, but the fact that we're looking to disembodied systems to help resolve what are deeply embodied challenges and problems. So you mentioned the word flourishing, and that's going to be my second question to you, which is at this moment in time when there is so much suffering and difficulty and an acceleration in the degradation of so many of the systems that we had put some kind of trust in or stability upon, what are the ways in which you conceive of flourishing? What does that mean for you? Well, from an individual perspective, it means that your systems, your physiological systems are well-functioning, your heart works well, your digestion, your uh, brain systems, and everything's coordinated there. And then your ability to connect to others and to be feel connected and coordinate with them is also then well-functioning. And then your your ideas about how to um, think about the future, how to think about things that aren't in front of you is well-functioning, is well-fully developed so that all this then leads to a sense of communion, a sense of oneness, a sense of we're in this together and we can do this. So you have capacities for action. Your consciousness is relational. You have relational know-how. And you're able then to work together in the peaceable kind of way rather than this very self-protection, bracing, you know, and fighting and opposition and all that kind of thing we see so prevalent now, encouraged by the media, of course, because that's what sells. And and then people get this idea in their head that, oh, that's the way people are. You, you know, they're selfish and aggressive and, you know, fly off the handle. And so you got to protect yourself, have a gun or whatever. Uh, so the I, our ideas that the culture pervades <laughs> to us that, unfortunately, Hollywood has a lot of power all over the world now to impose mm. its images about what to, what it means to be human and how to act uh, justly or appropriately. And it really then hooks into that neediness for guidance that our children have that they're not getting in a positive way. They get it from you know, advertising and from the movies about, you know, violence pays and it's fun. And mm -hmm. now superheroes, even sadistic, they didn't used to be when I was a kid, but now they're sadistic. They get pleasure out of harming others. So cruelty then becomes a norm too. In the States, it's, you know, it's uh, unfortunate in the politicians. So um, the whole place is kind of forgot what flourishing is. And flourishing, again, is that, that coordinated, peaceable way of being understanding that your way is one way and their way is another way and there's a reason for that and that you can uh, live together in, in, in cooperative ways. It's very interesting hearing you talk about um, what's missing often in our leaders. I, uh, I went to a, a wonderful retreat in January this year down in Embercombe called The Journey, which was a lot of time spent outside and in contact with nature and 
one of the one of the people I met there, it was a wonderful group of people, gave me a lift and was talking to me about a book that he'd read through someone that he knew that was a person who'd gone to Eton boarding school and was writing about how the people who come out of these types of institutions who are formed by them in rather horrendous ways, how much the suffering that they endure and the wounding they come out with impacts and limits their ability to lead lives with compassion, with connection. I am generalising here, but, but there's, it's so well documented. And yet it seems that still in this day and age, those with influence and power, we can, maybe we can get into that, still seem to want to send their offspring to these places, which has so neglected and harmed them in particular ways. And so maybe, I guess maybe that's a good segue to ask you about your pioneering approach called the Evolved Nest. Can you tell us what it is and actually why it's so revolutionary? Because it flies in the face of so many of these old, traditional, fairly patriarchal systems that, that we've kind of looked to and held up on, on a plinth. Right. Yes. The Evolved Nest. Well, every animal has a nest and we do too. And it's designed to optimize normal development and matches up with the maturational schedule of that child. A lot of epigenetic things are happening. Genes are being turned on and off during sensitive periods. And if you miss the supportive environment for that sensitive period, those things may never grow. It's not going to be apparent immediately, perhaps. The brain tries to accommodate and you know adjust with missing pieces. But when you reach adolescence and later adulthood, these things can show up as, you know, all sorts of problems, so suicidality, anxiety, depression, and other forms of ill health. So the evolved nest for humans is uh, most of the characteristics are over 75 million years old. That means they really work. <laughs> they <laughs> kept our ancestors alive, they helped them survive, thrive, and reproduce across generations. So that's what natural selection is about. Across generations, you have to outcompete your rival that doesn't have whatever experience you're looking at or um, mutation they talk about. But anyway, genetics is kind of a mess because people think uh, that when you have a gene, then you're going to be a certain way. But that's not how it works. It's how you, what you experience is going to affect how your genes are expressed and all sorts of other things. Genes are just like one little thing. We've, we inherit a lot of things. And one of the things we inherit is the evolved nest. So the evolved nest, we have identified nine components based on the anthropological research, ethnographers, mapping all over the world. These same characteristics are uh, given to children, are actually provided to the whole community <laughs> throughout life. So it, apart from the first two, it's like we all need nestedness. And why? Because it fosters our compassionate human nature which you can see in the adults, and you can see thriving in these adults. It's just amazing that we, we don't even, really? People are like that. They're kind. They listen. They're generous. They're empathic. They love to help others feel good. <laughs> they have a quiet mind. I mean, all these things. Uh, there's you know dozens of characteristics that we find rarely, I think, at least in our adults today in the United States. All right, so the Evolved Nest, number one. Soothing pre- and perinatal experiences. This means the mother feels supported during pregnancy. The child is wanted. Uh, the community wants the child and uh, is very welcoming to the mother and child. Birth is soothing as well. And post-birth, immediately the mother puts, uh, the baby is allowed to crawl up under natural conditions. They will do that to the mother's breast, uh, manipulate the nipple, start the uh, oxytocin and the breast milk to flow. And boy, talk about empowering, right? That child, you know, can take care of itself. And so that's how the childhood is set up. The child is able to uh, express their need and get their need met immediately for baby. Really important because we are like fetuses of other animals for about 18 months of age. Our brain plates do not close until around that time, meaning we are scheduled to grow a big brain. What grows a big brain? The second component, breastfeeding. <laughs> and for several years, which is always, you know, blows the minds of everyone in the West, you know, 
what do you mean four years? Ah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in Europe, it's a lot more common. Not everywhere, but certainly, yeah, you don't bat an eyelid if you see a, a younger one oh. or an older one. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than the States. It's like, oh, it's forbidden. You have a little closet they have for moms, you know, and like in airports. Oh. Um, so yeah, usually it's the global South. When I talk about the evolved nest, the global South folks, so-called global South are, are nodding their heads. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, good to know the science about this. Yeah. Great. Global <laughs> North's going, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I get yelled at. <laughs> what? Wow. I don't want to have to touch my child. <laughs> so wow. that's another component. So there's soothing perinatal experiences. We violate that all the time in the States. Medicalized birth is, oh, oh. Uh, fomenting illness, trauma in so many ways. Uh, we could go into that for a while, but then there's the breastfeeding. Breastfeeding um, for our species on average, four years of uh, until four years you wean then. So that's mostly a lot of night nursing in those last years, which builds the brain in so many ways. Breast milk is uh, amazing. It's uh, geared for a particular sex of the child, gender, uh, wow. for a particular uh, infectious agent in the region. It'll develop an antibody. It's different in the morning than at night. So energizing in the morning, inducing sleep at night. So you have to pay attention if you're putting your milk in a bottle, <laughs> which time of day you, you <laughs> bottled it. Um, but it's also promoting various um, physiological systems beyond the brain. The vagus nerve is a uh, 10th cranial nerve. It's the, probably the most important nerve in the body. It innervates all the major systems of the body. And so when it's not set properly, it can give you digestive problems, heart problems, respiratory problems, brain problems uh, later in life. Is that connected to asthma as well? Yes. Wow. So breastfeeding is promoting the vagus nerve, which runs throughout uh, the body, I don't know exactly, but all the way down. So it's, uh, it's promoting the vagus nerve functioning well, as, and touch does too. So affectionate touch is another component of the evolved nest. Babies need it 24-7. No isolation. The, the evolved nest is about maintaining a sense of connectedness and safety in that baby. They are the ones, you know, because their biochemistry, they're growing so fast. Thousands of synapses, uh, connections in the brain are growing every second. <laughs> so you don't want to put them in a stress state because then everything slows down and they get dysregulated and you're growing the wrong things, right? So, and then no negative touch, you know, longitudinally, that negative touch, corporal punishment, spanking is just like physical abuse or emotional abuse has long-term effects on the well-being of that child, making them more aggressive, less capable, less intelligent, and so on. So then there's uh, welcoming social climate. So that was sort of mentioned when the mother's pregnant, but also when the baby's there uh, or has arrived, that they feel like they are welcome everywhere. So they're not isolated. They're not put away in a crib or a playpen or, you know, they're in arms. They're carried around. Mm -hmm multiple people. So they feel, they learn how to, you know, connect and relate to people with different energies and different um, body movements and smells and all that. So that's multiple adult caregivers, really important um, for baby development, because these practices for babies have to be 24-7. And there's no way that a mother alone or father and mother alone can do this. They'll just wear out because babies need you all the time. Um, mm. And so we uh, evolved to live in multi-generational, multi-aged um, groups uh, so that there's always someone there who's ready to um, hold the baby or respond. So it's not just mom, mom has breaks, mom, you know. Um, and responsive care is another one. So you have responsive relationships. That means you're keeping the baby calm in those first three years, especially the brain is growing so quickly, uh, you want to make sure that you're keeping them optimally aroused, happy, content. Um, what our birthing practices do, though, because moms, uh, there's so much interference that moms end up having to have painkillers, you know, they, or they speed it up or slow it down, the, the labor. Then they give the mom painkillers because everything's out of whack because she's not able to follow the natural rhythms. The baby cannot eliminate, the, it gets drugged from the epidurals, the painkillers, and they cannot eliminate for weeks. And so they're actually wow. weeks behind home birth babies in terms of being able to look at you and smile because naturalistic birth 
in the studies that have been done in Africa, they're smiling at day two. <laughs> they're wow. Whereas in the States, in Europe, it's two months later. Oh, maybe they'll smile two months or three months of age because they're so delayed. And then what, what happens is they're sleeping all the time because of all the drugs. And then when they wake up, they're in pain and trauma and they're crying all the time. And then people think that's normal for babies to cry. It is not normal. It is not normal. So we've normalized all sorts of harmful activities, harmful outcomes, we think is, you know, just the way it is. People are aggressive and selfish and babies are just crying. <laughs> so then, all right, so soothing perineal experience, breastfeeding, affectionate touch, multiple adult caregivers, responsive relationships, uh, self-directed play. And this means with multiple uh, adults and kids, different ages, out running around, climbing trees, wrestling, playing chase. It's not organized sports. It's not organized by adults because the child has to learn, is learning how to get along and, and react to people, uh, their unexpected actions, you know, and it's growing all sorts of things in the brain, turning genes on that are great and all this stuff and controlling aggressive urges. They have to learn that or their playmate will stop playing with them. Yeah. So then there's two more, because uh, I think I didn't say welcoming climate, uh, nature immersion and connection. So we evolved oh. with nature, with a particular landscape that we are ready to learn how to love the tree here, get along with these animals, know how to nurture these plants, you know, how to honor this river and this mountain, right? That's what we evolved to do. And we forgot all that and look what we're doing to the planet you know, because we have no sense of attachment, connection, bonding mm. to our natural place. And then the last one is healing practices, regular healing practices. And that means having um, usually, hopefully, community ceremonies where you are able to sing and dance together and have someone lay hands on you and you are able to get back into balance, your mental balance, physical balance, your relational balance, your relationships with the natural world, and that builds community bonding. So these can be joyous, celeb celebratory um, kind of experiences or grieving ceremonies. When the San Bushmen of Central Africa were asked, well, how often do you have um, ceremonies? Let me just say the San Bushmen are 150,000 years old, their culture, and they uh, house, host our genes all our genes go back through them. Uh, when they're asked, how often do you have a grieving ceremony? They'll say, oh, maybe once a week or sometimes every day. <laughs> and I think that's where we need to go now. We've, we've kind of muzzled grieving ceremonies in the Western world. I think when the Protestant Reformation came in, they didn't want people in the streets moaning and wailing anymore. You know, no, that's inappropriate. Control yourself. <laughs> so we need to get back to that kind of... Uh, recognition of our feelings, because when they get stopped up, you, you've lost the connection to your heart. Heart-mindedness is the most important thing about being a human being, according to all the major religions. Heart-mindedness is you think with your heart, you feel connected to everything, and you act accordingly, right? Instead of what we've done in the Western world, is we think with our intellect, which wisdom traditions say is very dangerous, useful for solving a problem in the immediate moment, but if you still, if you do that too much, you'll start to think that's who you are as a human being. And that's only the left brain. <laughs> it's just part of you. And it thinks it knows everything. It knows very little, but it has, uh, you know, is able to manipulate the world and, and so on. So mm -hmm. I can say more about the brain stuff. But that's, that's the volume. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, this could be an entire season in and of itself. It's very, very moving hearing you talk about the different ways in which we could cultivate cultures that raise healthy communities. I'm thinking in particular, one of the things that you mentioned, which is about the baby being welcomed within a community and being in the arms of whoever's there that's safe to be, you know, all this stuff. One of my cousins had a baby a few years ago now. And for her, it was so, so important because she had quite a challenging upbringing for the community to gather around. And it's so wonderful to see that all of the people that she has around me, so my dad's from Gibraltar and, and they live in close proximity and it's more of a Mediterranean kind of culture and climate. This baby knows everyone and she's welcomed by everyone. And it's a completely different, like the confidence 
that this child has, the ease, actually, because it's not just this kind of brash, it's just a sense of good sense of boundaries, being able to be clear about what she wants. If she doesn't want to be picked up, she'll, she'll tell you. I wasn't able to do those things as a kid. And I'm looking at this thinking, wow, this is a completely different way of being where she is a lot less stressed. The people around her are less stressed. And it is possible. But in industrialised, principally Western, often English-speaking countries, it seems as though we've designed structures, I don't know if it's over time and things kind of compound, which inhibit, you use the word muzzle, it's such a good word because it's also creaturely, it's this kind of the wild, feral caregiving, and that we associate those things in very negative terms, which I think is, is, is a misunderstanding completely. But the muzzling of all of these things, how can we unpick some of that when all of us who are adults, most of us, I should say, will have had to contend with upbringings from overstressed, underparented, under-resourced parents themselves? Like, how do we not perpetuate this and we start to create a more flourishing future for the generations to come? Well, that's my work is trying to educate people about <laughs> who we are. What what does it mean to be human and how do you grow our best selves? And I have little movies now. So there's the six minute movie, Breaking the Cycle, eight minute movie, The Evolved Nest, 12 minute movie, Reimagining Humanity. Yes, in 12 oh. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that's no mean feat. <laughs> so yes, it's trying to re- reset, I guess, people's understanding of of our potential. And uh, a lot of people have been trying to do that for a while, but they didn't link it to early experience. They didn't realize that our personalities, our dispositions, our desires, our values, our um, attention uh, is shaped by how we're treated in those early years. And if we're undercared for, which is the lack of the evolved nest, we're going to be, our attention is going to be towards trying to be safe. We're going to be more threat reactive. It's just going to be, feel like instinct to look for threats. And we're going to be easily triggered into uh, a different wave, different mindset. I call them self-protectionist mindsets. So oppositional or withdrawn or even dissociated, mm. not there, not present. Uh, abused kids uh, often go into that state. Um, and when you're in that state, you, your blood flow is shifted. Your blood flow is shifted away from your higher order thinking to mobilize you for flight or fight, right? And, and so you're not going to be open-minded. You're not going to be open-hearted. You're just, you know, bracing, trying to get through it. And um, we've set the society up to encourage that. And um, with just ignorance and, and, you know, Ian McGilchrist's work um, focusing on how the left brain's taken over Western civilization and Western civilization has pushed its way all over the world. Hmm. It's part of that. And so the left brain, what we do when we undercare for children is we're enhancing the, the what's built in already, the, the uh, survival systems of the brain. So you're putting them into fear states, anger states, panic states, hmm. Uh, um, separation anxiety, all those things are there and you're enhancing them to be easily triggered. And what's supposed to be growing is what you were talking about uh, in um, the case of Gibraltar, right? Uh, the Mediterranean <laughs> culture where it's, you know, you're flexibly, you're learning how to tune into other people, different people, all the nonverbal things you have to learn before language starts as a baby, how to start and stop a conversation, how to recognize emotions and express them, et cetera. There's a, a whole bunch of things. And that then is what's supposed to be growing your social and emotional intelligences in those first years of life. And then you, they just keep it getting enhanced by being immersed in the world, immersed in the world of, of adults and learning apprenticeship, watching, and then pitching in. This is our heritage. But what we do instead is we stress the baby, put them in these survival states, it's not very, you can't learn very much when you're in that state. You're not going to be very creative except to protect, right, protection things. Uh, and then we send them to school and then we say, oh, don't, th don't feel, don't look out the window at the birds. <laughs> you, I want you to learn this information, take a test, fill the worksheet. That's all left brain stuff. Left brain, left brain, left brain, 12 hours a day, whatever it is, on and on. And so we think that's what being educated is. Native Americans are shaking their heads like, what do these kids know when they sent their initially sent their children to um, resident, well, schools that they had a choice about? 
Uh, and the kids came back and they, they couldn't hunt. They couldn't fish. They didn't know how to find their, the, their way home from a, a great distance. They, you know, they couldn't even live, uh, you know, they could take a test. <laughs> so we forgot what it means to raise a human being. Um, so I'm forgetting why I went off on this tangent. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's, so yes, yeah, so no, oh yeah, that's it. So how, how can we start to maybe dismantle the structure? So you were talking about the 12 minute video and reimagining humanity. Maybe let's start there. Is there something in particular that, that is really on your heart, mind at the moment about what we could be focusing on in this very moment that, that would really help matters? I know, I know it's a very complex web and actually ideally we want a constellated approach. But if people could start somewhere to start unpicking some of the damage that's been done, what might be a good first step? Well, I think it depends on who we're talking about. So let's narrow it. Maybe so if it's if it's some of us like folks listening from, you know, different walks of life, but they have a certain level of interest in shaping their lives with a great greater agency and reconnecting with community and with, with others. If someone's willing to kind of put in a bit of work personally and with their with the people around them, what might they do to start? Well, I, I suggest that people get back into the present moment. Uh, and that means connecting to wherever you are, to the living beings around you. Uh, we did a, an experiment that was published a couple of years ago on nature connection. We called it ecological attachment, where we uh, had college students come into the lab, do a pretest, and read about how important their condition was. And then they picked 21 activities from a bunch of options took them with them in an envelope, and each day for the next three weeks pulled out one of those activities and would, uh, were supposed to do it all day long. So these are college students on a campus, so we could say, uh, pay attention to the clouds today. As you walk across campus, acknowledge each tree you meet. You know, mm -hmm. And so what it's doing is it's bringing the person back into their body, their senses now. That's what we have to practice because the left brain's all about, you know, not being here, <laughs> not being in your body, yeah. not being in your senses, not feeling uh, and not connecting except to ideas. Right. So we have to practice the right hemisphere's way of being, which is connectedness in the moment. So if there's a spider here, say hello, honor the water in your glass. It's alive. Right. Everything is alive. Get back into an indigenous worldview, which is a sentient worldview. All our ancestors had it until a few hundred years ago. It is a sense of being in a living, dynamic place, not a dead world where I'm the only thing alive here in my office. No, everything's kind of uh, <laughs> bouncing with life. I just don't see it in my left brain oriented way. So get back into connecting, and that means when you meet people, say hello, ask them how they are, you know, help other people feel connected, and then you will feel connected too. So that's where I say start there. Every moment you can build connection. Mm. Yes, and it's funny because you notice that my partner's um, quite a bit more introverted than I am, and uh, <laughs> He often laughs at you. You know, sometimes you'll just catch someone's eye in a shop and there'll just be like a, a giggle or something. You know, and in the UK, I would always kind of hold that bit back because I don't want to make anyone think that I'm weird or make them feel uncomfortable. And here I just kind of have thrown, I live in Barcelona now, I've thrown that all out of the window and I had a really funny moment today in a shop where I went to get some, some veg and uh, there's a lady there and I can't, I don't even actually know her name, but she always giggles with me in Spanish. I have broken Spanish. I mean, it's good enough, but like, you know, it's not as great as it could be. And we were there standing like in the, in the shopping aisle, squirreled away for about six minutes. And then I realised I had some, a meeting to get. But it's just that kind of thing where even in unexpected, perhaps especially in unexpected places, you can connect and it just becomes a natural thing. And it's it's when it becomes something that you just take for granted, it's really special because then it's just your world view has shifted. And I think that's, if you're assuming connection, if you can get to a place where, connection is taken for granted in the sense that it just feels like the, the air you breathe in. Yeah. One other thing uh, to recommend now is to move yourself into a gratitude mindset. So wherever you are, be grateful. I have a chair to sit on. I, you know, mm. I have nice clothes. Thank you. Thank you, clothes. Thank you, Mother Earth, for this. Thank you, Mother Earth, for my uh, glass of water, 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lots of gratitude all the time, but relational gratitude so that you know that it's, that it's a gift. These are gifts all over the place. The sun is shining on you today. Wow, thank you. So to have that orientation is going to shift you away from that self-protectionist, right, and make you more open. It's going to grow your right hemisphere, which you can do throughout your life. I always recommend playing with a child zero to seven. They're still ready to be spontaneous and, you know, play and, and chase. And if you're not present in the moment with them, they stop playing with you. What's wrong with you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so they keep you in the moment. That's growing your right hemisphere. And that'll make you more empathic. That'll make you more flexible. That'll make you able to reach a higher consciousness. Amazing. Um, and often quite challenging. I think it sort of speaks to what we find easier. We do the things that kind of feel a bit more familiar. I do want to ask you a bit about the award-winning nonprofit of which you are president, Kindred World, um, of which the Evolve Nest is an initiative. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the work there and some of the insights that you've unearthed in your work with them? Well, I've only been president for maybe three years, so it's kind of an honorary title. The uh, force behind the, that uh, title is Lisa Reagan, who has been working in uh, activism, parent activism, for 25 years or more. Uh, and she is the one who has uh, took up uh, this uh, kindred world from the work of uh, Kelly Wendorf, who had started a ma magazine in Australia called Kindred. And so it just morphed into this online presence. And so the uh, board members are all uh, doing the kind of thing that Kindred is um, aiming for, and that is to reignite conscious parenting, reignite uh, an indigenous worldview. We've taken that up in recent years. My book with Four Arrows last year is part of that. And the Reimagining Humanity is all about that uh, the film. <laughs> uh, so... It's a, um, a place, kind of a hub for inspirational essays and videos and podcasts and other things that were other tools. Evolve Ness is doing a lot of the tools right now. Yeah. So tools for uh, that. I mentioned that experiment we did with college students. We transformed that into 28 days of eco-attachment.dance. Mm. So you can do them. There's Instagram things to one thing a day. They're little nudges, right, to get yourself back. We also have 28 days of self-calming, uh, 28 days of solo play, We're trying to get people back into the, you know, grow their right hemisphere, <laughs> different ways, <laughs> little nudges, just do a minute a day, start there, you know. <laughs> yeah, that sounds wonderful and practical because I think often there can be the desire to do it and then there are so many other things that we put on our to-do lists that crowd out the meaningful, important stuff. So one of the things I found particularly fascinating about your personal journey and story is that you started out investigating more of the kind of moral psychology, uh, moral development through more conventional routes, like studying reason, um, cognition, education, which in Western cultures, you kind of you go to university, you're talking about schooling, there are specific ways of approaching these subjects that you're conditioned to do. But you've since navigated towards a much more integrative, interdisciplinary approach. And I'm curious, was there something that sparked that transition or was it more of a, a gentle kind of movement there? I'm kind of curious how that, how you moved into that space when the odds of a structure kind of limiting you from getting there are quite big. Yeah, well, I guess this leg of my journey, well, let me just say that the earlier <laughs> legs of my journey have been uh, in other careers. So I was a music major in college, for example, accidentally, pipe organ I picked <gasps> up. I just couldn't oh, get wow. enough of J.S. Bach. Practiced and practiced him. I just love him. Yeah, he's amazing. Uh, and then I was a classroom teacher, a music teacher in the Philippines. Wow. I was a private piano teacher. I was a church organist for a number of years. Um, and then I went to seminary. So I thought, well, my seeking, because I was looking for the truth. What's real? What's yeah. true? And I was puzzling about my own background and the injustice in the world. Because my earliest memories are about children my age on street corners in poor countries selling gum, uh, you know, in rags. Uh, we uh, Half my childhood was spent outside the United States in Spanish-speaking huh. countries. So um, wow. my dad was from Puerto Rico. He was a professor of Spanish linguistics and then would take us with him So um, when he taught abroad. And, um, yeah, so that 
concern for justice and children has just haunted me all my life. But I had some detours, music. <laughs> I went to seminary, you know, well, maybe they have the answers. And I found, well, once I was there, really, it was a Lutheran seminary. I realized I wasn't Lutheran. I couldn't believe these things, right? <laughs> Which is a little bit disturbing, right? <laughs> How could I preach whoops. this? <laughs> but while I was there, I started my own business uh, and that was teaching Spanish to adults using super learning, which is suggestopedia, where they, you relax them with relaxing music and then you have more energetic music as you're presenting new information. I wrote a, a science fiction drama based on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the, so they'd read the Spanish while the English is on oh, one wow. side and then break into song. And then you play with it and you, you do games and all sorts of things like that. So Amazing. So I got my degree in, at seminary. I never got ordained because in the Lutheran church, you have to have a parish that calls you and then you get the job and then you get ordained there. I got everything else certified and all that. But then I was going to go to grad school and study systematic theology with John Cobb. Really, it would have been an honor to do that, but it just wasn't the right time for my life. So I worked in the Hispanic community, and this is in Minnesota. Um, and in the middle of, well, and I kept uh, doing my business. And then I was invited to teach at a prep school in um, Spanish to middle schoolers. Wow. And I thought, wow, uh, middle school, huh? Hmm. Which group did I not like when I was a music teacher? Yeah, them. All right, universe is calling me. Got to <laughs> take up the challenge. So I went and taught there. First year was hellish. Uh, but after that, I loved them. I was there four years. But in the middle of that, I started my PhD because I found I discovered moral development. Aha! That puts together ethics, justice, childhood, <laughs> everything I wanted to know about. And so I got my degree at the University of Minnesota. And the focus there is always on reasoning. I was looking at story comprehension with reasons embedded and seeing what people remembered, things like that. Well, how did I get to this place? Well, I uh, moved to Notre Dame in 2000, and I had been working in the schools, but the schools started closing their doors to moral education because the federal government had a new thing where it was focusing on testing, no child left behind, and it was called. And so all these doors were slamming, so I was reading more widely. And then the Iraq War happened, and I could not understand. I was one of the millions of protesters protesting the possibility of going to war, and then we went, mm -hmm. and it was like, oh, my God, how can people do this? I remember that protest. Yeah. yeah. What happened to a nation that could so easily go, you know, <laughs> you could use some bad words, mess up uh, yeah. other countries so easily? Uh, and so that's really how it triggered the, uh, my focus on neurobiology and the development of human morality. So what happens in early life to make people more self-centered and more aggressive and more um, manipulative and vicious? Mm. So let's talk about that then, because you're, and this is like, this is as, if, as if we planned it, but especially right now when there's so much conflict erupting, it's probably a good time to dig into this a bit more. You wrote an award-winning book called Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, which is exactly what you are just talking about, Evolution, Culture and Wisdom. And I'm curious, in your research and in all of the work that you've done in all of the different guises, because you know, you're interacting with people, using music, teaching, it's, it's all connected. What are some of the insights you've gleaned around why we're so aggressive? I know you sort of mentioned like the nine steps that we can take or approaches to help prevent that from happening, but are there specific things that we've not yet touched on that make us particularly prone to lashing out, especially at this moment in time? Well, I did mention how we, when you under care for children, you're putting them in, into an ongoing stress state, essentially, and you're not growing what's supposed to be growing, their capacities to get along. And so when they're put into, adults are put into situations where they don't feel, they don't know what else to do because they didn't develop the capacities for flexibility or responsiveness, perceptive, uh, emotional perception uh, capabilities. And so they, they get mad and they go into a stress state because especially boys, so boys get stuck in their survival systems because, uh, especially because their brains develop more slowly and they didn't, don't get the nurturing they need. And then they're encouraged, you know, a man up, uh, boys don't yeah. cry. Uh, and so they have to stuff their feelings. So then there's a disconnection. So we have a, um, 
you're disconnected. The baby's disconnected from their body because, you know, nobody listened to me when I cried or wanted something. They all, you know, ignored me. Okay, well, I better ignore it too. This body wants things. Um, but you're also your relational, your trust in yourself, your trust in your relationships. You know, these people aren't reliable. How can I, you know, you know, and so you end up having a one person psychology. I'm, it's me against the world because they're against me. They're not with me. I'm going to be against them too, but you're trained not to focus and you can't. It's just too self-destructive to blame your parents <laughs> or your caregivers or your community. No, it's those green people. Those green people are the ones that are making you mad, that are making you upset, that are causing all the problems. And so you channel your energy towards those, whoever your group, your family, your community says are the scapegoats. And then you build the narratives about that, right? These are the stories. This is, you know, we all know this and they become more instinctive again. And so when you see those green people, you're going to uh, feel unsafe and you're going to go into the defensive protective mode, right? Especially if you don't even have the other stuff developed, the relational <laughs> attunement and being able to be open to others and, you know, co-construct an interpersonal dance newly with this person today. You know, that's our heritage to do, be able to do that. So it's big. We have a big social brain for that purpose. We evolved to raise children together. Cooperative breeding is what the anthropologist Sarah Hurdy calls it. <laughs> Cooperative child raising is a little nicer <laughs> sounding. We, we evolved to do that. And that's how we got the big brains, the brains that can read minds that want to share their uh, what's in their mind and heart with the others, but it has to be fostered after birth. And this is what makes us different from chimpanzees. They cannot share their minds the way we do. They don't mind read, but we do. But we, in the last, since the last 10,000 years or so, our brains have been shrinking since agriculture. In the last several hundred years, our jaws have been shrinking because moms went to the textile factories industry and breastfed less. And so the jaws get narrow. You can't sleep as well because your palate, you have all these sleep disturbances because the palate is too narrow and all sorts of orthodontic problems that you don't see at all in, in nested communities. So there's so many pieces, right, that get misaligned. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's such a big thing to untangle. One of the things I think is really interesting, I had um, someone once said to me, she was a therapist, she said, because I was kind of butting my head up against some of these things and, and trust and relationships and the rest of it. And I hated it at the time hearing it, but it really stayed with me. And it was that we wound one another in relationship, but we also have to heal in relationship. Like you can't go it alone. You might not want to be in relationship with people because that's where the wounding is. That's where the pain or the fear might have originated. But you need to move towards healthy relationship in order to heal. And, and it was such a poignant thing because as that's the thing. If you've been taught from a young age in various different settings that it's dangerous to care, to love, to ask for something, to say no to something else, to need, you know, then, then as an adult, you, you constrict everything. And then people wonder why I was having the conversation with um, V, formerly uh, Eve Ensler, and she was talking about the separation that we feel from our bodies is one of the things that when people get sick, they don't notice that they're getting sick because until it becomes absolutely critical, it's just not registering for us. There's also like a sensitivity to our own system within the larger system. So, uh, yeah, we cut off our awareness of our body, but also our heart, right? And so to heal, you've got to unpack and take the Velcro off that you've protected yourself with. Ouch, ouch, ouch. It's a lot of pain going through therapy to do that, to reach down to, to realize you are okay. But you have to grieve. We're not letting people grieve, you know, uh, and be angry about uh, not getting your needs met when you were young, uh, for example. Another way to actually talk about it is attachment. So mm -hmm. with secure attachment, it, um, that comes from caregivers who are consistent and present with you and meet your needs pretty much pretty well. So it's good enough. Um, and that what you build is a sense of trust of relationships and capacity, figuring out how to um, get along, but also to judge whether someone's trustworthy or not. You have a good sense mm -hmm. for, you know, who you could have a relationship with. When you have insecure attachment, 
those things don't get developed properly. You cannot tell that this person's trustworthy or not. And you get in, end up in these relationships that are dangerous and harmful to you. Insecure attachment comes from the caregivers who are either inconsistent. They sometimes come, they sometimes don't when you're a baby and you need something. Uh, they, if you're left to cry and then they finally show up and you're still crying, um, that means you can you, you've learned to use screaming to get your needs met. Mm -hmm. To, you know, sort of Trump-like, you know, oh, I'm just going to make a mess of everything and then I'm going to get my needs met, right? Uh, or if they've left you to cry and never come, you just have to shut down. You've then, now you've cut yourself off from all sorts of signals, right? And you learn to do that. You still, though, in both cases, don't know how to do relationships. And so, but then you don't know any better, so you always blame the other people <laughs> for the problem. Yeah because you don't have a, a self-awareness. So there's so many skills that you have to develop in those early years that then are hard to replace or redo when you're mm -hmm. older, but you can. And I'm curious, with listening to a conversation earlier today, which was on this Jungian life with a friend of mine, um, Dr. Erin Balick, who talks about the psychodynamics of social media, so taking more of a psychoanalytical or Jungian approach. And I'd love to ask you about what role you think social media plays in propagating, and if you think it does, um, in propagating the sense of disconnection, because we kind of have this ability, you and I are having this conversation online right now. And so it's an amazing tool to be able to reach people that otherwise we would never conceive of having um, contact with. And so it gives us this sense of connection, but actually often the technology we use, it helps to alienate us somehow further because you don't project ourselves into the place with the other person so we can say all sorts of things. What are your thoughts around the role of social media in either exacerbating or helping the situation we're in currently? Well, I, th I think it can uh, enhance the in-group, out-group orientation, the us-against-them way of thinking yeah. of the world, uh, which actually feels good when you, when you don't have any sense of oneness, of uh, interconnection, interbeing with everything. You've latched on to some ideology. So an adolescent who's been undercared for throughout life finds, you know, the Nazi group, the hate group, the uh, military, something that they, ah, oh, this is where I can find security. This is where I find meaning, right? Because you have to find meaning. Nobody helped mm -hmm. them develop any other sense of meaning, for example. Or it could be a religious uh, ideology. So then on social media, you're more attracted to whatever your group is. And then when someone in your group starts to point fingers at somebody else, oh, yeah, you know, you're trying to always identify your difference, how you're different, mm -hmm. you're better, right? And social media just enhances all that stuff. Um, and when you don't have, uh, I mean, I think anybody can fall into the rabbit hole there. Yeah, it's very easy. What would be a good antidote to that? Is it gathering with one another? You mentioned ceremony earlier and the... Uh, the, the lack of opportunity that we create for us to come together and to grieve. If you could change things in Western societies and just kind of implement some kind of change in behaviour that would help people kind of shift things, what would that be? I would start with turning off the screens, right? Unless it's conversations <laughs> like this. Turn off television. Don't let Hollywood put the things in your head. The images that that uh, television, this has been a complaint of, of critics for decades, right? Mm -hmm. Television puts images in our head that we can't erase. We have no choice yeah. about it. And then they're there. Uh, yeah. Social media does the same thing. So uh, we have to control that. That's just un unjust. It's imposition. Mm -hmm. It's a lack of freedom. We are now, our free will has been compromised. Uh, radio is different. Radio, you have your own images, right? You have a story. Um, perhaps. So um, anyway, screens are a problem, I think, in general for child raising. Now, you know, after 25 years, yeah, then turn the screens on. <laughs> 25, wow. Because the brain is still yeah, developing, something. you know. Uh, that, that's uh, why they don't, that, well, that's why insurance companies, car insurance charges more if you're a male under 25, because they know your executive functions haven't fully developed yet. Um, and you tend to be more risk taker and a more dangerous driver. Anyway, that so screens. I know this is not going to happen. So <laughs> I would start there, but I'd go back to uh, yeah, community <laughs> gatherings. So play days together in the neighborhood. 
um, getting back in touch with people. But again, to do that, you've got to turn the screens off because everyone's just kind of stuck in front of their television or whatever, their phone. Uh, Put it away and come and join in, come and play. So with my college students, uh, so I retired a couple of years ago from teaching so I could do public education, but I would um, teach them folk song games since I was a music uh, teacher. <laughs> so it would be a hunting, we will go, hunting, we will go. We'll catch a little fox and put him in a box and then we'll let him go. You know, and you're making the circle bigger and as you catch more people and everyone's trying not to get caught. You're touching each other. You're laughing. You're singing. Uh, you're looking at each other in the eye. Your vagus nerve is is, is uh, humming. Your right brain is growing, right? And it's so much fun. And then we would go and teach those games to kindergartners. And they would be in little groups together. And, oh, my goodness, the students were just amazed at how happy and, and excited and fully present those young children are to those kinds of mm-hmm. things. So that's trying to get us back into joy. Let's have some so- yeah. social joy together. Rather than, you know, you know, who are you? I'm, you know, that bracing (laughs) crabbiness, that irritability. Let's get past that. So I don't know if this is possibly just building on that. I want to avoid uh, repetition. But um, one of the questions I like to end with is how do you orient yourself towards beauty and life and wholeness on difficult days? Well, I tried to start each day by oriented orienting myself to I have spirit animals and in each direction um, and that's seven directions realizing I'm in the center of my universe now I'm like the spider in the web every action I take is reverberating across the web to everyone else I'm a body of energy we all are right that's what we know from quantum physics and my energy is going out there what kind of energy is it going to be is it going to be that bracing against, you know, hate, uh, you know, fear, uh, panic, or is it going to be love? So I'm, I try to emphasize the sense of openness and lovingness in every direction and to be um, connected with my ancestors. I have uh, photographs of all my um, men, uh, uh, scholarly mentors as well as my family members around. So I can, you know, ask them, please uh, guide me today too. (laughs) my spirit animals as well, so that I am always in a web of relations guiding me. So I'm never alone. I never feel abandoned, isolated. There's life everywhere. And then I try to also honor the plants, the trees that we have in our, um, under our stewardship where we live and be present to them and talk to them, you know, ask them for advice. Hey, I'm having this problem. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. I find birch trees tend to give me particularly good insights. (laughs) Oaks. And oaks. (laughs) Yeah. Oaks. Oaks Oaks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Although I did recently come back from a wonderful kind of nature retreat up in uh, in Scotland, in Inverness, and they have these beautiful Scots pines. And there's one in the, in the there's like a pine and birch forest behind the place where I was staying. And one of them's absolutely massive. And you can just sit there for a while and it just doesn't matter what state I'm in. By the end of it, I feel so grounded. Um, it's wonderful. Yeah. So earthing, <laughs> you know, earthing, hugging the tree lying on the earth and earthing, which uh, re kind of um, discharges uh, ions or something, I don't know, but it gets you balanced again, right? So we have to remember that we're earth creatures. We need everybody here. We need all these uh, sentient beings with us. Mm. Beautiful. And so if people want to find out more about your work, Evolve Nest and also Kindred World and anything else that you're working on that you would love to kind of put into the mix, what are the best places for people to find you or the best things for people to search? And I'll include these in the show notes. Yeah, probably is evolvenest.org is the best place. And then there's kindredmedia.org. And there's a lot of uh, resources there. There's We have an Evolve Nest curriculum now that people can download. It um, can be self-directed or with a group uh, community group discussion. And there's... Um, podcasts and videos links to those in there and essays and then how do are you nested today if not you know in these particular ways did you get enough touch did you play enough okay here's some suggestions for you you know to do today or tomorrow um and to build a habit 
of, of making sure you're nested. And then nesting uh, suggestions for your workplace or your community. Wow. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your insights today. There's so many more things I could have asked you, but it was a real, it was a real joy to be in conversation with you. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Natalie Nahai and Conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to me to read your support, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour our love and time and attention. To find out more about my work and how to get involved in my projects, you can head over to natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources, and check out the gatherings I run at ffsalons.com. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.